Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Thursday, March 15th, 2021. As a reminder to my friends, Matt Hotchberg, Mike Newell, and Mike Scopa, beware the odds. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim continues our new series of The Tower of Terror and how it became the first ride at a Disney theme park to be reprogrammed to have new drop sequences. That first episode was great, and we all learned a lot about the unbuilt version for Disneyland Paris. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's reading a horror story in Braille and thinks something bad is about to happen. You can just feel it. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? There's a simple solution, Len. Have you ever seen those dishwashing gloves? It's like, whenever I get the new Stephen King in Braille, it's just, okay, you keep that hand available in the plastic. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I can't look. I want to know. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of which, I just saw today, though, the latest Stephen King later, I guess, is going to debut number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Oh, that's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah. You like to keep those, uh, he's in Maine, right? You like to keep Maine writers employed. It's a good thing. That's it, exactly. <laughs> More to the point, we want to keep him indoors. Indoors, exactly. He's a national treasure, yeah. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Lida G, Mark Philip Andrada, Tim's mom, Eric444, Michael Del Sol, and A. Gotti2. And longtime subscribers, Daryl V, Lindsay C., M. Legisky, 33, and Lecherous Frenchman. Jim, I didn't know you had an alias. Jim, (laughs) (laughs) these are the folks who make up all the tiny bird costumes you see on stage at the Maharaja Jungle Trek in Animal Kingdom. That Victoria crowned pigeon is really a regular pigeon dressed up in a small blue romper. And the red, yellow, and green you see on the golden pheasant is really a woodpecker dressed as Elton John circa 1977. True story. In regard to the lecherous Frenchman thing, I would have launched in my Pepe Le Pew impression right there. but Literally exactly what I, the first thing I came up with, Pepe Le Pew. There we go. And it's just, on second thought, maybe not a good week to do that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not the best time to do that. No, definitely not. All right, Jim, let's do the, uh, the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, a trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news Disneyland is now cleared to reopen. That came out from uh, the governor of California based mm-hmm. on the current projections for where the state's going to be. So the big question, Jim, is is when? I think the state cleared them as early as April 1. But as we record this on March 11th, 19 days from today, 20 days from today seems unlikely, right? There's a lot of logistical stuff to do. Just yesterday, I forget who was posting this online. They had... Cast members who had returned who were training yep. to work at the admissions point. As I understand it, what's complicating this is just prior to Newsom's announcement. Uh, remember the Touch of Disney program that got yep. announced for yeah. DCA? It's uh, like a food and a food and beverage event. Yeah. See, that was only initially supposed to run, I want to say, from the 19th of March through the 5th of April. But they got so much demand, they sold tickets. And I guess this runs Thursday to Sunday, Friday to Sunday, I I forget. But they had so much demand, they sold tickets through the 19th. Of April. Yeah. And then it's one of these things where it's like, oh, these people paid to get exclusive access to the park. And yes, suddenly Newsom has sort of removed the blocks. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's really not fair to the people who paid for this exclusive access to then go, oh, and by the way, Disneyland's open. Yeah. This all now sort of keys off of 
the very last day of the Touch of Disney on April 19th, and it'll just be interesting to see how soon after April 19th the park reopens. All right, so let's go go through a couple of things here. One, can Disney hire enough people or bring back enough people and retrain them between now and, let's say, the middle of April? I think that's a yes. Yeah, yeah. You've got a very deep bench there and a lot of people who, frankly, love their jobs at the parks and would, yep. would love to come back. Okay. So the, the next thing then, what about rides and maintenance and making sure everything is is able to be run at whatever capacity they're going to run it at? My, my understanding is they've actually been running the rides lately. Like every yeah, day or so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maintenance has always been in there. In fact, I, I remember early on there was this clickbait headlines to the effect of, you know, Disneyland's closed and it means all the rides are going to break down and they won't reopen. And it's like, that's not how Disneyland operates. They have teams in there after hours and this is a huge asset for the company. So of course they're going to protect it. Of course right. they're going to maintain it. But you hit upon the point of making sure you have people who in fact know how to run these things. Right. And then you get into the weird parallel situations where, for example, if you're looking to open something like, say, Avengers Campus, mm -hmm. you want your A-team on that. You actually throw it open to all employees and you, you hire your very best vets so you have this trouble-free experience, but you're then backfilling attractions that these folks have stepped away from. So sure. it's one of these situations where as you begin to staff up again, it's just sort of like, okay, who are we bringing back? Who's going over to DCA to work on this right. new thing at the park? And we haven't even talked about the fact that this is the initially 15%. Is that what you read? Because again, I heard 15 possibly stepping up to 25% occupancy of the park. All right. So let's talk about capacity. I want to talk about supply chain stuff too. Okay. So the interesting thing is it's 15% of park capacity, but there are limitations on the kinds of rides that can be open. So indoor, com uh, completely indoor rides apparently are a no-no, mm -hmm. which you would think limits Disney considerably. So uh, open air rides are fine. So in Fantasyland, for example, Dumbo, fine. Okay. Storybook Canal Boats, fine. Carousel, fine. And then there's a, there's a uh, reduced capacity for indoor outdoor rides. And I'm assuming here, by the way, uh, Matterhorn, fine, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's reduced capacity for indoor-outdoor rides. And so a big question that I think we all have to figure out, and Disney has to figure out too, is what counts as an indoor-outdoor ride? Like hmm. Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, That ride in Disneyland is both indoors and outdoors. I, mm -hmm. I think we could, we could all agree that there is both an indoor and outdoor component in that. Mm -hmm. But what about Pirates of the Caribbean? That's kind of a sticky point because it's like if we're talking about classic dark rides at right. Disneyland, I think Peter Pan would count. Would it? Would, would it? Because how much of Peter Pan is outdoors? Just the load unload area. Well, you know, if we're finessing, you know, that's the, the thing. The, that's it. So yeah. a lot of this is going to come down to mm -hmm. how much of the ride has to be outdoors yeah. for it to qualify as indoors. Because if you think about pirates, there's yeah. that one little section mm, at the end that, that's exactly where you sort of go. And is that. So in an 11-minute ride, you know, a 12-minute ride, whatever, is yeah. 20 seconds or 30 seconds of outdoor enough to classify it under that middle tier. Yeah. And, and here's the reason why that's important, right? This isn't just a sort of a, a, an academic exercise. Mm -hmm. A ride like Pirates is like 3,000 people an hour. So even at reduced mm -hmm. capacity, that'll be like 1,000 people an hour. And mm -hmm. if you have a ride that includes 1,000 people an hour, it means that the park capacity is now a thousand people an hour higher and you can let more people in the park. 
But if you start taking away things like Mansion, Space Mountain, Pirates, yeah. right? Pit Pan, sort of the dark rides that are mostly indoors, all of a sudden the park capacity gets much, much smaller. Oh, no, no, absolutely. By the way, the Nemo submarine's not coming back anytime soon. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to keep the hatch open. <laughs> possibly go wrong <laughs> we're going under the waterfall have a good time okay quick question because just this week and, I, and in fact i think it was the touring plans on twitter that, that brought this up but isn't seven dwarfs mine train at the magic kingdom now sending out full trains and, and so this actually relates to a, uh, a listener question that we got about park capacity so if you want to hold off on that one for a second we'll uh, we'll address it yeah but uh, but disney's moved to to loading i think we've talked about this before disney move, is moving to loading full trains in lots of places now. So Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, because it's outdoors, every row is being uh, loaded now. As of yesterday, I don't think Big Thunder was. But like mm. Tower of Terror is, but even things like, but it's not even just indoor-outdoor. Like in Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, mm-hmm. cabins now are now shared among unrelated groups. All good things, but you know, I, I guess the, the thing we also need to remember here is Florida has been on up and running in some form since what June yeah. of last year. We're we're July. Anaheim, yeah. you know, yeah. July, you know, just Anaheim. We're just just you know, it's it's baby steps country. So well, just, I wonder how much of this, how much of the because uh, the the announcement sort of caught people a little bit off guard, and mm. I wonder how much of it was related to the fact that California didn't release its the results of its fact finding trip to Walt Disney World, and then started getting pressure about it. Ooh, interesting point. Let's you know not forget that the Governor Newsom recall effort yeah. is picking up speed. So yeah, there, there's heat coming from all sorts of different directions. So right. So if the capacity, if they're going to open up at fifteen percent, Disneyland, I think the park capacity is somewhere around eighty-five, between eighty-five and ninety thousand. So fifteen mm. percent of that would be about twelve thousand five hundred people. But that's assuming every ride in the park is open. But if they start limiting capacity, you could see as few as you know five or six thousand people in the park. To mm-hmm. begin with, and I'm sure there'll be a reservation system for it. But Jim, here's my other question: There mm-hmm. are no annual passes now for Disneyland, and when the park reopens, it will be limited to only California residents. And I believe there's further geographic limits on there. So you, should, I think California is saying you should come, you know, should be within 200 miles to travel. Mm-hmm. Is Disney going to charge everybody single day ticket prices? for this, and then require them to buy annual passes later on? Or do you think we'll hear something about annual passes? or counting these these one-day tickets uh, towards credit for them, or what? I mean, are we going to hear anything about annual passes between now and the time Disneyland opens? I was just talking with a, a veteran manager at the park, and, and Keith was grousing about the fact that their own internal projections show that at 15% capacity, the park will lose money. Yeah, but it's a step that you have to take to get to 25%, right? Yes, That's so. it, exactly. But the fear in California is we're now over a year since the park has been closed. And yes, we have to make this baby step, get you know, to 15%, and we're willing to eat it to get to 25%, and that's when we start to finally get to a, a place where we can make some money. Yeah. But at the same time, they're looking at the variants, what's going on in Texas and Mississippi and, and that sort of thing. And the fear is, what if we get it open at 15 and then we have to stay there? For months. Mm, I get it. I think that's unlikely given mm-hmm. the uh, pace of vaccination in the United States. I mean, basically by the time they get, by the time they get everything sorted at 15 or 25%, mm-hmm. um, that'll be the end of May. And according to all of our you know, all projections, we're saying pretty much every adult in the United States who wants a vaccine will have one by, by mm-hmm. that time. 
I totally agree. Saying the exact same stuff. I'm just what I'm just saying. Oh yeah, is, yeah. Worst case scenario, something happens, like a, a new variant pops up that isn't covered by the vaccines, and they yeah, they're stuck at fifteen percent. Yeah. Yeah, but there are there were so many side issues to reopening in California between. You know, the, the, again, you know, we, we would just talk about the annual pass holders. Yeah. You know? What do you do with annual pass holders? So, you know, our, so you're going to, you're going to need a reservation system, but mm -hmm. let's say you're an annual pass holder and, and you love Disneyland, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to go, you know, three or four times over the next couple of months, you could spend four, $500 on those mm -hmm. tickets. And, and then you're going to be required to buy an annual pass after that. Or will the, will the four or $500 count towards it? That's a super <laughs> interesting question. I mean, based on the thing we're going to talk about next, I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Disney is not going to sell annual passes now until the beginning of the fiscal year. So I don't think yeah. I don't think we're going to see annual passes now until October one. Well, why, why, why don't we move to that new topic? That's one more thing. I want to talk about supply chain stuff real quick. So another thing, in, in, along with you know making sure the rides can reopen and the employees are trained and mm -hmm. you can sell ticket meetings stuff like that. I mean, Disney has supply chains that are very long and take time to get ramped up for things like food. And merchandise. Right. So my understanding is that for food, especially when the park reopens, I have to give a shout out here to Guy Selga from mm -hmm. our team who's done some work on this, is essentially look for lots of prepackaged food and the very basics, like stuff that Disney can get. Do not expect a full suite of menus at every restaurant mm -hmm. um, in Disneyland. It's going to be the very basics, hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken nuggets, stuff that they can get their hands on while they ramp up their supply chain. So that's mm -hmm. that makes sense too. We've seen similar limited menus at Walt mm -hmm. Disney World. They continue to this day. So... Just look at how Walt Disney World has handled a lot of the issues, and that's the coming attraction for what's what's coming in Anaheim. Likewise, just today, I want to say Good Morning America had a, talked about the multiple container ships that are just sitting outside of ports because they don't have the staff at the yeah. ports to get these ships unloaded. So it's like, if you think the menu at the restaurants is generic, line, wait till you see the merch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the other big uh, event that we've, uh, we're alluding to here is... Uh, Bob Jepek announced that Remy's Ratatouille Adventure will open at Epcot on October 1st. Mm -hmm. Nothing was mentioned about Guardians of the Galaxy, Harmonious, Tron, Space 220, or anything else. I'm assuming all of that mm -hmm. is going to get pushed to 2022. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Given what we've been hearing from longtime Walt Disney World employees about the training, about the operation I think you were then who citing that, you know, that this thing was operating so smoothly, it was better than Test Track was doing, right? Yeah. So I've seen that, that I've been getting the test and adjust reports for Remy's mm -hmm. Ratatouille Adventure fairly regularly. Mm -hmm. And it is, that ride has been running reliably for more than a month. Mm -hmm. And when I mean reliably, I mean, if you look at the amount of downtime mm -hmm. that the ride gets per day, they're, they're basically, you know, running the ride continuously to mm -hmm. emulate a typical day of operation. Remy is, has like pauses of maybe, 10, 20 minutes a day mm -hmm. where something needs to be reset or something needs to be shut down while they figure something out. Mm -hmm. You compare that to something like Test Track or to Frozen Ever After or to even Spaceship Earth, which has anywhere from you know 30 minutes to a couple of hours of downtime mm -hmm. on potentially bad days. Remy is, and I'm not exaggerating here, probably the most reliable ride in Epcot right now. So if you're wondering why Disney needs to delay this thing to why mm -hmm. Disney's delaying this thing to October 1st, it's not because the ride's not ready. It's not no. because people are trained, right? It's no. also not a safety issue, right? Mm -hmm. We we just mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. Disney's loading unrelated groups into Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, a very small cabin, right? Mm -hmm. If there are safety concerns about putting people on Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, 
there should be the same sort of concerns on multiple rides, which Disney does not have. Mm-hmm. It's not that Disney hasn't done this before. Oh, no, they've done it. Yeah, yeah, we've talked in the past, for example, about when Mickey's Toontown opened in California, and I want to say uh, January of 93. And at that point, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin was done, complete, ready to go. And they deliberately sat on the opening of that for a full year because they felt, especially with Indiana Jones being under construction at that point, they needed a big attraction for the, the following year. So they they made a cold-blooded conscious choice to the effect of, yes, we could open that, but we won't. Which brings us to Remy's Ratatouille Adventure. Right. Now, being ready, it's, as you mentioned, there aren't any glitches. There aren't any safety issues. It's ready to go. But it's just sort of like, from, you know, a strictly cold-blooded spreadsheet kind of decision, Disney has made this decision to hold back the opening till October 1st. Yeah, and October 1st, we should all note, is the Mm -hmm. beginning of Disney's um, fiscal year. (laughs) <laughs> so that any travel that happens mm-hmm. for promote uh, by um, or through promotions of Remy mm-hmm. counts in fiscal year 2022. So I I, I had tweeted something out mm-hmm. to Universal Orlando. Universal mm-hmm. Orlando, I think later on that day, mm-hmm. um, after Chipek made his announcement, said, "Hey, Velocicoaster is coming <laughs> summer of 2021." Yes. And my tweet mm-hmm. was something to the effect of, "So your leadership team is not sandbagging." the rest of the fiscal year so that their 2022 numbers could look better for their bonuses. You crazy kids putting guest experience first. Muzzletop. <laughs> I don't think Muzzletop fit in my tweet, but, okay. but, but let's call it this. I mean, so this is what it is, right? Disney is, is moving Remy's opening date to October one mm-hmm. purely for financial manipulation, right? There's no, there's no technical reason. There's no safety reason. There's no operational reason at all mm-hmm. not to open it now. This is my theory. They don't want to open in, in 2021, fiscal year 2021, mm-hmm. because they've basically already written off because of the pandemic. Sure. Sure. So in that case, Disney executives performance for 2022 will look better if 2021 is as bad as possible. I, I don't say as bad as possible. They don't, they don't want to put help in 2021 because they've already written it off. Now they're looking to 2022 so that the year over year comparisons financially for 2022 or better than 2021, which if that didn't affect anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. If that was just Disney shareholders, maybe, you know, and the executive team, I could maybe squint my eyes and -hmm. give them that. Or if it wasn't, you know, seven months from now, Mm -hmm. right? I could kind of see that. Here are my concerns, right? One, Epcot hasn't opened a new ride, Mm -hmm. a truly new ride since Soren, which was 16 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? I don't count the redo of the seas with Nemo and friends or grand fiesta turtle from El, El Rio del Tempo, right? And character ratings don't count, right? So, so 16 years in the next seven months, there will be hundreds of thousands of guests who are paying full price mm. to go to Epcot who could use a new ride. The argument to, that Disney's making right now is, yeah, you're going to pay full price for the next seven months. You're not going to have any new rides, you know, in, in the last 16 years. And we could turn this on, for you and give you something to talk about and something that you would enjoy and something that's new. But we're not for financial reasons. There are two things to take into consideration here. One is that if you think about Epcot, you think especially about the old 
why do I want to say centurium? The the image where <laughs> you know the, I, again I'm dating myself. The, wow. the center of the park in a different world that, that wasn't dealing with a pandemic. This project would be that much further along, and the fact that you know it, with a giant new attraction that compels people to get into this park. They still have to troop through the heart bypass that's going on in the center of this park right now. Fair enough, and that's so. Then, so you think that'll be done by October? That well, a, a significant portion of it will be done. All right. So, so pedestrian walkways. Uh, you know, I can kind of see that. Let me let me just ask this question, and I know you're probably relaying this from Disney people who are upset with my with my comments. And again, <laughs> another another reason why I'm not getting invited to the Remy Media event. Uh, yep. But let me let me ask mm-hmm. this question: Was it a surprise to those people? that there was construction going on in Epcot or that pedestrian walkways would eventually need to be cleared. Let me further, you know, the, the, this is, the, this is one of those things where you kill both your parents and then ask for mercy of the court because you're an orphan. Right? These problems go. are largely of somebody's making. Anyway, go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I, 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 <laughs> to further help you along here, Len, I get you know, let let's point out that you know, harmonious. We have watched over the past week or so, the barges, locked into place you know yeah. and in fact you know, yeah. I, I have read so many off-center tweets i don't even want to begin to, to get or that to get into that issue i I, yeah. I i can't wait anyway okay so that's still supposed to get turned on it's like oh, wait a minute you know, the, aren't the people who are coming into the park to see harmonious you know also going to be walking on these non-existent walkways and it's like shut up you and the other thing that frankly got mentioned and it just it's one of these things where it's like okay i can sort of buy that but the notion is that on october 1st of 2021 that will be the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Magic Kingdom. And the belief is that thousands of people are going to want to be in that park for the exact day that Disney World opened. So if you open Ratatouille on that same day, you create an artificial draw that will right, pulls people, pull. pulls people yeah. over. Right. Okay, so that's supposedly part of the consideration here but it's just talking with these these vets at disney it's just sort of like you can even hear in their voice of like look i don't believe the crap i'm saying <laughs> myself but but this is what they're this is what's coming down from corporate so it's like okay so let me parrot the line that we've been handed of all of the explanations that i've heard mm-hmm. for all of this the we need another event for october one yeah. right is is the, okay and and, and so to your point, I can kind of squint mm-hmm. and and make out make out for that. Here, here though, is my my concern. Mm-hmm. Right, that crush of people, that throng of people mm-hmm. for uh, that will be in the Magic Kingdom for the Magic Kingdom's fiftieth event is going to last exactly one day. Mm-hmm. We're delaying a ride seven months so that we can handle crowds for one day. That's the rationale. Uh, again, did, did I mention <laughs> the hesitancy of mentioning and, this particular and, and talking that, point? <laughs> you know. and, and that's the best plan. Yeah. Like that's, that's the best option that they have for it. What is the line out of Ghostbusters? Get her, Ray. That's your plan? Get her? You know? Like, okay, yeah. that's the plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. There we go. There you go. go. Like, we'll keep on the go. Okay, I've said my piece on it. I, I, I think everyone knows where I'm at on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say again, going back to this, right? The fact that they're making the cold-blooded financial calculation mm-hmm. to delay Remy to October one, the start of their 2022 fiscal year, means you know, I, I was thinking that 
Disney was going to have to offer annual passes for Walt Disney World mm-hmm. in June because that's when they cut it off last year. And again, there's tons of people who have bought the DVC mm-hmm. for which they've got way more points than they could use in a three or five day trip. But buying multiple three or five day tickets is not financially viable, right? It basically eats into the savings that you're making for for, uh, for DVC. Now, you know, if you had to ask me when Disney's going to start annual passes again, they might start selling them on October 1, just because, again, they don't want to book the annual pass revenue that they know they would get in this fiscal year to make yeah. this fiscal year look better. They, they, they should they should move it to... So I think anything related to like annual passes, that's all going to come out for a start date of like October 1 now. Somebody's going to be getting their black belt in bookkeeping. Yeah. It's like, what expenses are we gonna, can we push off here? To Actually, no. they'd probably pull the expenses into 2021 mm-hmm. and pu- push the revenue to 2022. That's there the way that go. they would do it. Yeah. There you go. Look, we're doing great. You know, it's like... <laughs> we should be like a Khan Academy on, on theme park bookkeeping here. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Okay. Um, also this uh, weekend, speaking of reopening stuff, Blizzard Beach reopened. It uh, looked really, really good. Opening day was, I think, uh, 65 degrees with a high of like 70 Ooh. in Walt Disney World. And it was super, super windy. Volcano mm-hmm. Bay had actually closed for inclement weather on uh, Disney because it was opening day and they'd mm-hmm. sold tickets to it. They decided to open. Um, good news is the water was heated and uh, mm-hmm. you walked around the park, everything looked fantastic. Cast members were super happy. Everything was painted. Maintenance, maintenance looked great. We live streamed at the, uh, the event. So yeah, Blizzard Beach looks uh, really, really good. And uh, Hats off to the, uh, to the entire team that reopened that. Good job. Terrific to hear. All right, so here's a uh, couple of listener questions. We had one from John who says, uh, I know Disney's reportedly running at 35% capacity but is that 35% of normal capacity or wouldn't max capacity be less because there are many attractions that are closed. And that would explain why 35% capacity feels much busier than it is at times. So uh, Jim, you and I actually addressed this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when we think of 35% capacity, we typically mean like of maximum capacity of the park, but to John's point at places like the studios where most of the shows aren't running, that mm-hmm. significantly impacts the number of people who can be in the park at any given time because uh, park capacity is predicated on how many people are are, are uh, in line or um, on rides and shows and things like that. So yeah, John, to your point, it's based on the capacity, 35% of what we can handle with the rides that we have open. Good point. Mm-hmm. Um, another listener question was from Jeff. Uh, I noticed that Disney recently added plexiglass to Navi River Journey ride vehicles. I think this is a fairly recent addition. It is, um, but I could be mistaken. I was a little surprised to see this because I thought there were heading towards a bit more normalcy. Disney seems to have invested a lot of money in plexi dividers throughout the parks, almost to the point that it looks permanent. Have you heard anything about this remaining as the new normal? They've done a great job making the dividers blend in somewhat, but if I were to be honest, I'd be disappointed if they were to stay permanently. So Jim, what are, you, are you hearing anything about the plexiglass device? My sense is they're going to be here for at least a year. Yeah, but if you talk with the folks at Hobbs, they hate these things. Oh, yeah. You got to clean it. You got to, yeah. But uh, more interesting, they slow people getting in and out of the vehicles. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't grab onto the Plexi. No, that's it exactly. You know, so you, it slow down the unload, offload experience, you know, which in turn, you know, then reduces the ride's hourly capacity. So, you know, if the ops people have any strong voices at all, going forward as soon as possible, They'll be right. pulling these things. And it's going to be a very interesting moment back at backstage. And you remember the cast member only shop? It's like everybody who goes in there to buy a t-shirt that didn't sell gets a complimentary sneeze guard. So what I think, what I think might happen is, you know, there's a, like a metal channel 
mm-hmm. that holds the plexiglass. They might there you go. they might leave the middle channel on there, but put like you know rubber piping, you know, on top of it so that you could press down on it and, and to support yourself, and then just leave the plexiglass with masking tape on it that says this piece of plexiglass fits seven doors mine train or whatever, and then just keep it yeah. in case it, it, it happens again. I don't think they'll I don't think they're going to get rid of the um, all of the support no. infrastructure for it. No, from talking with managers there, you know, think about the last pandemic happened, you know, 1918. So it's a hundred year event. But at the same time, if you think about how Florida has dealt with a hundred year hurricanes that are now happening every three and four years, it's just sort of like, okay, we need to do better for these once in a lifetime events that maybe won't be safe and sorry. There we go. So, yeah. I, th- I think that's what we'll see. The plexiglass will come down. The plexiglass mm-hmm. supports will stay, mm-hmm. just in case. You never know. Yeah, no, 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 that makes sense. All right, uh, last listener question is from Meredith, who says, on uh, this trip, we'll be having, on our upcoming trip, we'll be having an Epcot birthday for my kiddo, who's turning six on April 16th. Our agenda for the day is to ride pretty much everything in Future World, snacking around World Showcase for lunch, dinner, and doing some birthday shopping at Mitsukoshi for some Mario and Pokemon stuff. I have breakfast reservations at Alien Compass because I thought Remy might be open then. Insert, insert game show womp womp sound. Womp womp. <laughs> and we wanted to rope up the inter- international gateway. We'll be coming from the poly and we'll likely have a rental car, but we're fine with using Disney transportation as well. So, Jim and Len, would you mm-hmm. rather, A, drive to the Yacht Club, have breakfast at Alien Compass, and rope drop international gateway entrance and beeline to Frozen, then hit Test Track, Soren, etc., and hope we're hungry again to start snacking around lunchtime? We'll have to drive home at the end of the night, but I don't plan to have much in the way of adult beverages. Or B, skip Alien Compass, eat a grab-and-go breakfast, and take the bus from the poly, or pray the monorail opens, uh, come in through the new front entrance to get the whole fresh Epcot vibe for the day, and rope drop test track, followed by Frozen, then back to Future World. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I honestly think the new fresh Epcot vibe at the front entrance isn't that really more, particularly with the new lighting, kind of a nighttime experience? I mean, yeah, you can, if you show up in the morning, you can see the leg, leave the legacy 35 foot tall walls, you know, with their yeah. new color scheme and the, the flags, but it doesn't necessarily play as well as it does at night. Well, to your point, too, I mean, that part of Epcot Future World is going to be a construction area also for true. The, during, yeah. during Meredith's trip. So, yeah, yeah, you get the flags, yeah, you get the fountain, but Mm -hmm. I think it is better at night. Mm -hmm. So we have two options here, A and B. Why don't Mm -hmm. we come up with a third option here, which is you still get to Epcot early, but instead of eating at Ale and Compass, you go through the front entrance, Meredith, you do Soren or Test Track, whichever one you want to do, and then maybe Frozen. But then what about a lunch at Sun or a late breakfast at Sunshine Seasons? Okay. Because then you get your future world entrance, you get your food, you get your test track in. I don't know that I would necessarily do frozen. Here's why: uh, it's even from from test track to frozen, which are both on the east side of the park. That's still 20 minutes there and back, mm-hmm. plus the wait. And I don't know that you would save 20 minutes in line if you just went like later on in the day, like if you went last or nearly last at frozen. I don't know that you would wait longer than an extra 20, 20 minutes. And even if it is, do you really want to walk all that just for that? So I would do Test Track or Soren. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would do that. I would do Test Track and Soren and then eat at Sunshine Seasons, have a nice relaxing 
meal there yeah. and think about the history of the land pavilion. Well, also, you know, let's be honest, what's great about Sunshine Season is six different restaurants. I mean, you know, again. Yeah, I mean, it's limited know, right now. And, yeah. you know, breakfast stuff is even more limited. But, you know, if the park opens at 11, you're there for lunch anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You know, yeah, I would eat a snacky. So this assumes that Epcot's going to open at 11, which means it's really opening like 10, 15, 10, 20. Mm-hmm. And I would be there for that. So, you know, grab something at, uh, to go at the Poly. Hop on a bus or take an Uber to the front of Epcot. Definitely get there, you know, like 45 minutes before the park's official opening. So you get through security, temperature check, and so on. Everything should be open. Um, when you get into the park, Meredith, first thing to ask, the first cast member you see is whether Test Track is actually operating that day. Because sometimes it doesn't start with the rest of the park. There technical difficulties. And so you don't want to walk all the way over there and waste the time. Yeah, so do that. Soren, Sunshine Seasons then frozen later on and then come back in the evening uh, once it gets dark and do um, Spaceship Earth mm-hmm. and look at all the pretty lights and fountains in the future world. That's what I would do. Option C. There we go. Excellent idea. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jim. Thanks for walking through that. No problem. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Geyser Mountain, the predecessor idea to Disney's Tower of Terror. We'll be right back. When we left off last week, we had talked about Disney doing this thing called Geyser Mountain in Disneyland Paris, which looks like a rickety wood building version of the Tower of Terror. Where do you want to pick up? We had some wonderful comments from listeners that I want, you know, before we get started here. You know, you and I were talking about the attraction that a Geyser Mountain was inspired by Freefall from, from Magic Mountain. And Scott Price, one of our listeners, reached out and, and actually... You know, because we were like, well, you know, four person per cage and this free fall thing. And, and it's, it turns out Scott was, well, look, I, I spent some of my college days operating free fall sister ride and predecessor in Texas. And the Texas ride, and most likely it's clones, ran mm-hmm. as many as six cars with one on the tower at any one time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, hourly capacity actually of like 600 ride. Riders. Okay. So, so, so to put that in perspective, the old version of Dumbo mm-hmm. with just one uh, set of elephants was mm-hmm. around 720 an hour. So Freefall at its peak mm-hmm. was about 14% less than Dumbo. <laughs> okay, all right. Still, okay. Not, still not great. Okay. Also, we mentioned the Six Flags uh, Magic Mountain dismantled its version of Freefall back in February of 2008. Uh, Patrick A. wrote in to say that Freefall lives on at that theme park, sort of. He says, I don't know if you guys are aware of it. You must be. But since the loss of Freefall at Magic Mountain, they developed another themed drop ride called the Lex Luthor Drop of Doom, which flanks Superman the Ride. It's interesting as Freefall itself is sort of a combo of these two rides. The last time I was at Six Flags Magic Mountain was back in summer of 1988. And when they had just opened Ninja, this is their uh, suspended swinging coaster. And evidently, just before I got on the ride, they had greased the track. Oh, and then it rained? And then it rained. Okay. <laughs> so This is your Pepe Le Pew moment. <laughs> it is. It is. I rolled into the station, and I had a black smear that started at my forehead and then went straight down to my crotch. Because it's, it's an overhead, right? The, uh, the track is overhead, so everything drips overhead. down. Everything. Oh. And it was one yeah. of the things where to watch the, the team member at Six Flags kind of make a face and it's like, sir, would you, you just step over here for a moment? <laughs> yeah. I, need to, I need to get my manager because when you see a mirror, you're going to be unhappy. Yes. But Six Flags was great. They bought me an entire change of clothing. I think they pa- 
paid to dry clean what, what I was wearing, and and they immediately shut down Ninja. Like I, I don't know, as everybody want else wants to be Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> the stuff you learn when you when you when you open your eyes, right? There we go. No, that's yeah. it exactly. All right. Anyway, I wonder if that happened to anybody else who ever went to Six Flags Magic Mountain. But anyway, okay, we talked about Geyser Mountain, uh, which was designed for the Frontierland section at Euro Disney, a yep. uh, part of the expansion of that park. We neglected to mention who designed the attraction, which was the late, great Pat Burt. Jim Shule, who's another veteran Imagineer who seriously deserves more time in the spotlight, needs to be recognized for all of the stuff that he's worked in the Disney parks for over the past 30 years. He reached out to v, uh, via Twitter to comment on Geyser Mountain drawings that we posted part of last week's show. And Jim went on to say that regarding those elevation drawings, which were on the web, I watched the original drawings be produced. The person drawing them had to tilt his table at a vertical angle to work, and the drawings were drawn large scale to help with the detailing. Sadly, we lost uh, Pat Burke, who, by the way, started at WED in 1972, Len, right after Walt Disney World opened. And then he went on to, over the course of his decades-long career, he helped design and build four versions of Big Thunder Mountain Railway, four different Indiana Jones-themed attractions. Wow. Three versions of the Jungle Cruise, and finally, two different versions of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Hi, I specialize in Frontierland and Adventureland. <laughs> there we go. By the way, if you want to learn more about Pat Burke's amazing career at Walt Disney World, you can find a lengthy uh, interview that Elaine Lidier uh, did with Pat back in July of 2009 at Elaine's Disney and More website. Sadly, it was a week. Ago, it was a year ago this week that the Disney fan community learned that we lost Lidier. A huge, huge loss. He was the, he was the author of that great. Disneyland Paris from Sketch to Reality book. Oh, yeah. So uh, definitely go out, check out that July 2009 uh, interview that Elaine did with Pat. There's some great tidbits in there about guys around, including the fact, Len, that in or around the year 2000, there was serious talk at Walt Disney World Imagineering about reviving the Geyser Mountain project. Only this time, it was to be built at Disneyland Park in California where Big Thunder Ranch was located. The thinking was that they were still building California Adventure, and -hmm. that was going to open in February 2001, and the fear was that new theme park was going to be so popular with guests that the Imagineers were going to have to build a big new thrill ride at Disneyland Park that it was Geyser Mountain that was going to convince the guests who, you know, just were having such a good time at DCA that they wouldn't leave, that they needed to go over to that older park. (laughs) I mean, okay, I, I, I get the, I mean, uh, I get the optimism. Where yeah. would they have put it? Like by back by where Big Thunder Mountain Ranch was. Remember the petting zoo outdoor barbecue place at Big Thunder. Yeah, Ranch? Big Thunder Mountain Ranch. Yeah, yeah, the ranch. Yeah. Okay, so you build it there. In fact, that's a deliberate choice, Len, because you've built it as far back in the park as you can possibly go at that point. Yeah, that means need, yeah. anybody who's going into the park to go to experience Geyser Mountain has to walk by eighty, you know, eighty percent of the stores and the restaurants in the park. And so, you know, the thinking was this will at least translate into some more souvenir sales at Disneyland, or at least some impulse churro buys. Disney's California Adventure opens February 2001, right out of the gate. It struggles to attract visitors, which is why one year later, February 2002, it is revealed that that theme park, rather than Disneyland proper, is going to be the one that gets the big throw right. And of course, that's of course a, a modified clone of Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, which had 
at that point had been built at Disney MGM Studios back in July of 94. But but again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yep. Last week's show, we talked about uh, when it came to your Disney, there were two teams of Imagineers who were talking about how they wanted to use the free fall uh, technology at that theme park as part of a thrill ride for the park. So last week, we talked Geyser Mountain. Today, I want to talk about the Captain Nemo-inspired version of Freefall that was originally going to be built inside of Discovery Mountain. Captain Nemo of submarine fame. Of submarine fame. Okay, okay. so you know about the Liberty Arcade and the Discovery Arcade. Yep. Uh, the, those enclosed walkways behind Main Street USA that allow guests to stay safe and dry, especially during those winter months in France. Love them. Okay, now... Of course, the idea here was that once guests got under the Euro Disneyland Hotel and bought their tickets, they could, in theory, stay undercover, thanks to covered walkways, porches, and the like, all the way out to Fantasyland, thanks to the Liberty Arcade. Now, at one point, the Imaginers had a similar plan in place for the Discovery Arcade that was supposed to allow guests to stay warm and dry all the way to that theme park's version of Star Tours. And the way that was going to work, Glenn, was that they were going to take Euro Disneyland's From the Earth to the Moon thrill ride yep. and locate that on the fourth floor of Discovery Mountain. So the okay. idea is you'd walk through the Discovery Arcade and then suddenly, you know, there'd be this, this way that you could enter this cave that was under Discovery Mountain. And as you stepped into the cave... <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the catacombs of uh, Paris under Notre Dame, right? Oh, by the way, there's we there's a cave here, just like in Paris. There we go. But when you walked inside, your eyes adjust, and there in front of you, inside of this immense cave, is this hidden grotto. And docked inside of this hidden grotto is a full-size recreation of Captain Nemo's Nautilus. Okay, so we've got water, and on the water is the is the submarine. Okay, this is ambitious. It's also familiar. Anybody who actually has seen the Ray Harryhausen movie uh, from 1961, Mysterious Island, hey, wait a minute, the Nautilus parked in a grotto hidden inside a mountain. I saw that. <laughs> but here's the thing. Ray Harryhausen borrowed a number of design ideas for his movie from Disney's 1954, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So all's fair in love and war, especially when it comes to the Nautilus. Wasn't there also a James Bond film that involved capturing submarines it's the one i want to say that carly simon sings the theme song for okay all right so lots of lots of uh 1960s references to very hiding, much so. uh, hiding sub submarines in places okay so anyway there's a pathway around the edge of the grotto let uh it right. allows you to walk around the inside of discovery mountain again you're inside you're safe you're dry and you can walk over to the back entrance of star tours likewise you can queue up to go upstairs to ride from the earth to the moon Interestingly, as you walk by the Nautilus, you see that there are two queues. You can enter a queue that they do a walkthrough experience of the Nautilus, or if you're, you're hungry, you can book a meal that will be served to you inside the Grand Salon of the Nautilus. By the way, this is an idea that carries over from Discovery Bay for Disneyland from the mid-70s or thereabouts. Remember, we pushed out from the Earth to the Moon, their space mountain ride up to the fourth floor. Okay. All right, which means this is a very tall building. Yep. So the, the what the Imagineers argued is like, look, let's take advantage of the actual height here. Let's put a free fall ride inside the mountain that then takes you out to the top so you can view of the Euro Disney theme park. And so 
It's the classic free-for-all ride structure. You have four guests at a time climbing to a cage. This mechanism then takes them up a lava tube, the, mm-hmm. a, one, one of many that crisscross the inside of Discovery Mountain. And as they, as they rise up, guests see show scenes with various inventions and people from and Nemo's crew, you know, working on experiments and things like that. Uh, they reach the top of the lava tube. Spectacular view of Euro Disneyland, but then... Top of the tube, there's suddenly an earthquake, which causes the observation car to start to fall off of its track. And you then plummet back down to Earth, and only at the last minute, an emergency brake kicks on, and the guests get out, and they've had a, a thrilling ride, and they've had a spectacular view. And what was interesting in-house was, here's the Discovery uh, Discoveryland team arguing to WDI management. It's like, look, we should have the rights to the freefall ride, because we're using it the way it was intended. Whereas if you think about it, the Frontierland team with the Geyser Mountain thing, remember when we talked on the last show, Disney was kind of uneasy about doing this straight copy clone of Freefall. Right. So they you know, sort of reinvented the attraction. So now, you know, initially you were blown up in the air by this sudden release of steam. And it was only after you came to the top of the building that you then crashed back down to earth. So, you know, the Imagineers were going to have to reinvent the wheel, going to have to invent a ride control system that was going to do that. Whereas the Discoveryland guys were like, look, you know, we just set it up like Six Flags has it. And, you know, we create this little show scenes along the way and, you know, yep. then they fall and it's the same ride system. We don't have to spend all of this money for complicated braking systems and stuff like that. We, Yeah. Okay. That's exactly. But remember, this is for phase two of that theme park. This is, you know, when they're going to be expanding and adding capacity. And of course, uh, Euro Disneyland opens in April of 1992 and immediately has problems meeting attendance projections. Yeah. Likewise, on-site room occupancy and guest spending. And a lot of would-be ads to that park. And you know, I know we've talked about the Little Mermaid Dark Ride and yep. the Beauty and the Beast show. Uh, they get tabled, as did this very ambitious version of Discovery Mountain with an interior grotto. But we did get the we did get the Nautilus ride, right? We the, did. Uh, yeah. But here's the interesting thing: it opens uh, June of 1995. But it's a far more modest version of, of both. You know, for example, Discovery Mountain is right on the ground. I mean, it still looks like a space mountain and, you know, has that wonderful cannon mechanism on the outside. But on the other hand, the Nautilus is parked outside of the attraction right. and, and still, and it does the walkthrough, but doesn't do the Grand Salon restaurant. And by now, the imaginators, when it comes to Disney's possible use of freefall, they pivoted. They're now looking to how they're expanding Disney MGM Studios, which opened in May of 89. And we will talk about how the freefall ride mechanism gets monkeyed with and eventually becomes the Tower of Terror that we know today on the next installment of Disney Dish. Awesome. That's fantastic, Jim. I'll get you the piece of art of the interior of the mountain where you can you can literally see the freefall ride in place. You can see the Nautilus. You can see the the, the walkway that was in place to go around the, the grotto. It, it would have been amazing. The, the financials just weren't there at that sense, time. Yeah. So, yeah. That stinks. And mm-hmm. and now it's unlikely that we'll ever get that again because that would be, you kind of have to be in the uh, in the big building mood to get that. Jim Shul, reaching out about Geyser Mountain, wanted to point out that remember how we talked about as that, you know, we were on that elevator that descended below the surface. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at one point we look out at, you know, the the, the, the rainbow caverns. And again, do Mickey's rainbow voice. Rainbow caverns. There, there we go. Okay. <laughs> well, it turns out that this effect, that scene survived. And oddly enough, it's in 
Tokyo Disney Seas. If you go Is to, it? Oh, that's great. If you go on the journey to the center of the Earth attraction, you actually roll by this scene as part of that attraction. But it was one of these things where it's like, that's too, that's too nice. That's too fun an element. We have to find a new place for it. So years later, it gets incorporated into yet another Jules Verne ride. So That's fantastic. Thanks to Jim for sharing that info, by the way. Yeah, thanks very much. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the single best podcast episode we've ever done, presenting the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script with real actors, music, and special effects. On next week's show, we're going to finish the history, or we'll get three parts of it anyway, of the Tower of Terror ride drop sequence. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be preparing Grandma Adams' secret Ziki recipe for the South Dakota Chislick Festival this coming July 31st at the beautiful Freeman Prairie Arboretum in Freeman, South Dakota. Admission is free. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.